This is the story of how an ancient Catholic monastic order deep in the snowy Alps came to possess one of the greatest trade secrets in all of history. It's a story that spans the French Revolution, the reign of Napoleon Bonaparte, and the modern French Republic. And the story continues even now into the present day. How did the Carthusian monks, with their vow of silence and their perpetual poverty, come into ownership of a secret so precious that only two brothers of the order are allowed to know it at any one time? We'll get to that in a minute, but first, let's have a drink. So this cocktail that I'm going to make is called the Steady Cocktail. Of course, in these strange days, we can't go out to the bar like we used to. We can't sit in our preferred spot and chat with the bartender who knows our name and our drink order. So let's do the next best thing. Welcome to the Tavern of the Mind. So we're going to start here with gin. And I have a jigger to measure it out. I'm going to do one and a half ounces of gin. You can hear me pouring that into the mixing glass. So this is going to be stirred, not shaken. Um, and then I'm going to take the vermouth here and I'm going to add one and a half ounces of vermouth. Our host this evening? My name is Derek Brown and I am the owner of the Columbia Room, a cocktail bar in Washington, D.C. And I'm the author of Spirit Sugar Water Bitters, How the Cocktail Conquered the World. He's being modest. That bar he mentioned, the Columbia Room, in 2017, fellow bartenders named it the best cocktail bar in America. All right. So now we have equal parts gin and vermouth. The next thing to do is take this wonderful little ingredient, the one that is somewhat contraband, <laughs> and put it in. This is the Elixir Vegetale La Grande Chartreuse. I'm going to put one healthy dose in it. Derek's an old pro, but for the lay people among us, it's worth pausing for a moment on that key ingredient, Elixir Vegetale de la Grande Chartreuse. It's a rarefied combination of 130 herbs, but that's really all we know about how it's made. The rest, the process of just how these 130 herbs come together to make chartreuse, is kept secret by two Carthusian monks in those snowy Alps. There's a more technical name for this secret. It's called a trade secret, a deceptively simple area of intellectual property law that quickly opens up fundamental questions of knowledge and information. But right now, Elixir Vegetal de la Grande Chartreuse is just an ingredient in one of Derek's delicious cocktails. Next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take some ice and put it in the mixing glass. And I use a lot of ice. Keep it nice and cold and get it dilute. And then I'm going to use a spoon here, a cocktail uh, bar spoon, cocktail stir. The next thing we're going to do is take a strainer, put it on top of the mixing glass, and pour it into the glass. That's it. No garnish. We don't want to... It doesn't need a garnish because the chartreuse is so aromatic and beautiful on its own. 
Uh, we just don't need to use citrus or anything else to enhance it. From the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, this is Stroke of Genius. Cheers. So how does a person rise through the ranks of American libations until they're at the forefront of the craft cocktail scene? How do you break into the upper echelons of bartending? It was pretty easy, really. I was just a shiftless loser. And um, it was pretty easy to end up in the restaurant industry that way. So, you know, some 20 years ago, I ended up working in the restaurant and it wasn't long until I'd be, it wasn't long until I started working behind bars. And that's where I kind of found this perfect job for me. But according to Derek, it wasn't just the work. It was the stories behind the work. I got to learn about all of these great drinks, where they came from, the people who made them. And each one was sort of like a slice of history. Um, Each drink kind of told a story. And so as I went down that rabbit hole, I just found more and more information about spirits, about cocktails, um, and, and about bars and bartenders. And so that's been a really fascinating, endless font of information for me. Uh, so what started is just mixing up a couple cocktails has now become a kind of all engrossing things. I'm curious about every aspect of bars, bartending and cocktails. Now, the savvy historian and raconteur of spirits will know to keep their skepticism. The first thing to know is that uh, historians, even very amateur ones like myself, have learned to very much distrust claims about, um, you know, secret recipes and monks. But there's an exception for everything. There seems to be something to the chartreuse story. Indeed, there does. And we'll get to that in a moment. But first, what exactly is chartreuse? And how has it attained an almost mythic status within the cocktail world? Well, there's not chartreuse. There's chartreuses, right? Um, Most people are familiar with the green bottle. And that is the one that they know the best. But the original one, Elixir de la Grande Chartreuse, Um, dating all the way back to 1605, or that's what it's purported to be dated back to, is a little concentrated form, about 69% alcohol with, as far as I know, about 130 different herbs and plants in it. And the best way to describe that one, being the original one, is like falling face first into a garden. You know, it has all of these like plant kind of aromas and some floral aromas, some spice aromas. Um, but ultimately, it's, a, it's something that's so complex that you really can't nail it down to its individual ingredient. But of course, there are offshoots of the parent liqueur. So you have a series of chartreuse products, all created by Carthusian monks, uh, Carthusian monks, sorry, I, sometimes I mess it up, Carthusian monks in um, uh, France. It's, it's, it's a lot of different things, but ultimately they all revolve around this very intense, complex flavors coming out of plants and herbs. Now about those monks. The Carthusians are a cloistered order of Catholic monks, founded in the year 1084 by Bruno of Cologne, more commonly known as Saint Bruno. That's them singing right now. The head monastery is called Grand Chartreuse, situated high in the French Alps. Even by monk standards, the Carthusians are notoriously reluctant to engage with the outside world. 
The Carthusians of the Grand Chartreuse live their lives in contemplation. A daily ritual of prayer, manual labor, mass and meals, all conducted quietly under a vow of silence. And a vow of silence is a useful thing if you have a world-renowned trade secret to keep. It's 1605, on the outskirts of the French town of Vouvert. One of the king's marshals, the Marshal of Artillery, to be precise, sends a gift to the monastery of the Grand Chartreuse, a manuscript of a recipe, already a century old. There is this idea that in the earliest 17th century, in 1605, that an alchemist had passed on this recipe, right? But that the monks who got it didn't know what to do with it. That they actually, we think of recipes as kind of like a bulleted list with exact proportions and, you know, what you're supposed to do in terms of chopping, grinding, etc. It's not strict like that. It talks about what time of day to pick things. It talks about feelings. Like it, it's kind of like a general, I, feelings might be a bit extreme there, but it, but it has, it's not like a list of ingredients per se, as much as it's a, a methodology. And so initially when they got this um, recipe, they didn't know what to do with it. And they wouldn't know what to do with it until over 150 years later, when one of the brothers of the Carthusian order finally worked it out in 1764. This original formulation of chartreuse was extremely potent at 69% alcohol by volume. This is the elixir vegetal de la grande chartreuse that Derek told us about just a few minutes ago. Of course, you can still purchase the elixir, if you know where to look. It is available for purchase and consumption, but only in other countries. In the United States, it's not imported. Um, you do find some places that sell it, but um, I think there's some issues around the formula or sharing the formula with the FDA, FDA or something like that. So if you're going to get some, you kind of have to find an online place that'll sell it to you and or go to France itself. The elixir was originally used for its medicinal purposes, but people seemed to like the taste of it too. And while the monks were first and foremost men of God, they knew a good business opportunity when they saw one. So in 1840, the green chartreuse, known the world over, was born, produced as a beverage at a much more drinker-friendly 55% alcohol by volume. Of course, the path to alcoholic immortality wasn't that simple. In 1793, France was in the midst of its bloody revolution. King Louis XVI had been beheaded, and Marie Antoinette was quickly approaching the same fate. Revolutionaries had overthrown the power of the Catholic Church, and religious orders were expelled from the newly declared republic, which meant the Carthusian monks were now in exile. And while they left under pain of execution, they were sure to make one strategic move before seeking refuge beyond the borders of France. They made a single copy of the recipe for the elixir. And the two-brother rule was born. From the revolution until the present day, only two brothers of the order are allowed to know the full recipe at any one time. One of the two monks was arrested, but his jailers were unable to find his copy of the recipe. However, the recipe did make it into the hands of a pharmacist 
and, a few years later, into the hands of the Minister of the Interior under the new French Emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. But in a stroke of, shall we call it divine intervention, the recipe remained unproduced. And in the early 1800s, the manuscript containing the recipe was returned to the Carthusian monks, who had, by that time, been allowed back into France. A century later, the monks survived one more expulsion. In 1903, France exiled the Carthusians and brought the Chartreuse distillery under national control. But it was a short-lived scheme. In 1929, the monks regained control of the recipe, came back to France, and restarted production of their famous, mysterious elixir. Much to the delight of bartenders like Derek Brown. Since the emergence of this sort of craft cocktail movement, um, cocktail revolution, whatever you want to call it, and that really started kind of like late 80s, but gained so much steam in the beginning of the 2000s. Um, and and we're obviously we're enjoying the fruits of that now with so many great bars and bartenders and, and gr- ingredients. But bartenders started to gravitate towards some weird stuff, you know, like they really started to play with things like Fernet Branca and different Amaros and bitters or Amari and bitters. Um, and, and, and so it was just a matter of time before they kind of rediscovered chartreuse and that became sort of like a popular ingredient in cocktails for craft cocktail bartenders. Though popular ingredient might be an understatement. It got to, to be such a, you know, kind of like, um, I guess, calling card for bartenders that bartenders were getting the actual inscription and motto of the Cartesian monks on their body, right? <laughs> And we're talking about people who were, you know, probably agnostic or atheist, putting this religious order symbol uh, tattooed on their skin. So it, it, it definitely underwent this renaissance and, and this sort of fanatic interest in it. And the motto that those irreligious bartenders were eagerly inscribing on their skin? Stat crux dum volatur orbis, which means uh, the cross stays steady as the world turns. Steady as the world turns. A fitting description for an order that's managed to hold on to such a secret for so long. But what about that secret? That rarefied combination of 130 herbs, passed on by an alchemist 400 years ago? Back then it would have been just that, a secret. But nowadays there's a more technical name for the information that the Carthusian monks keep locked away in their alpine stronghold. A trade secret. It's a fairly simple definition, although it can get uh, complicated once you dig into the elements. Uh, Although a trade secret uh, definition varies across jurisdictions, generally in the United States, it is one, information, two, that derives economic value from being kept secret, And three is the subject of reasonable efforts to maintain its secrecy. That's Rebecca Edelson. She practices intellectual property law with the firm Shepard Mullen in Los Angeles, where she specializes in trade secrets. I'm going to go through each element uh, so you can have a better idea of what it means. Um, The first one is information. If it's not information, you can't protect it as a trade secret. And to give you uh, sort of a 
concrete example, and a diamond may be valuable and kept under lock and key, but it is not information and therefore it cannot be uh, protected as a trade secret. So physical objects are out. Processes and knowledge are in. Chartreuse the drink is not itself a trade secret, but the exact process by which the monks make it, the knowledge in the heads of only two brothers at a time, is a trade secret. The next uh, element is economic value from being kept secret. And uh, basically what that means is it's secret information that gives a business a competitive advantage. In other words, your competitors would love to get their hands on that information. Uh, Keep in mind, it's... Its value it derives from being kept secret. So if it's visible to the world or readily ascertainable because it's posted on the internet, it doesn't qualify as a trade secret. So if Napoleon's Minister of the Interior had made the chartreuse recipe a matter of public record and had it printed and distributed to the people of France, the Carthusians would not still have a trade secret on their hands. But happily for the monks, the minister exercised forbearance. The last element of a trade secret is reasonable efforts to maintain secrecy. And it's important to underscore here that absolute secrecy is not required because if absolute secrecy were were required, people would not be able to really exploit their trade secrets in the same way and they would be less valuable. Um, What is required are just reasonable efforts. uh, And the efforts are to keep it from the information from becoming generally known by the public or by competitors. Um, But keep in mind that if your trade secret becomes generally known, notwithstanding your reasonable efforts to protect it, you will likely be out of luck and you cannot enforce it as a trade secret. Now, it's unclear if a vow of perpetual silence falls under the category of reasonable efforts. Lawyers and theologians of good faith can disagree. But the two-brother rule certainly does. Of course, chartreuse isn't the only trade secret in the food and beverage industry that's captured the imagination of Epicureans worldwide. Actually, some of the most famous trade secrets come out of that industry, and it underscores the uh, point that a good recipe can withstand the test of time. I'm Colonel Harold Sanders, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my Kentucky Fried Chicken. Hey, you two coming? You go ahead, honey. I want to talk to these folks a little bit longer. Indeed, you don't have to travel to Europe to find some of the most famous culinary trade secrets. From Colonel Sanders' famous combination of herbs and spices for Kentucky Fried Chicken, to the family recipe at the heart of Bush's Baked Beans. I've only shared Bush's secret family recipe with Duke, and he's not talking. Many of the best-kept trade secrets come from right here in the United States. And then, of course, there's the godfather of all food and beverage trade secrets, Coca-Cola. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow-white turtle doves. Coca-Cola, it literally is one of the most valuable trade secrets in history, and it goes back to the 1800s. It was developed then. 
and uh, it involves really sort of high-tech Fort Knox technology to protect it. I mean, it's basically uh, maintained in this vault uh, that requires a palm scanner, uh, a numerical code, and it has an enormous uh, steel door. In terms of um, human knowledge, supposedly only two senior executives bound by NDAs know the formula at any given time. And their, their identities, their location, their positions are not released. Um, and interestingly, over the years, some have claimed to crack the original formula. Uh, however, none have been confirmed. And uh, to my knowledge, uh, Coca-Cola has <laughs> never said, yeah, you cracked our code. Okay, so no one has cracked the code yet. But let's just say you did. Tinkering in your kitchen, trying out this and that, a little caramel, a little sugar, add some carbonation, and voila! What if you actually reverse engineered Coca-Cola exactly? What happens to its status as a trade secret? If they're protecting it as a trade secret and you didn't use any improper means, like you weren't a former employer of theirs with access to the trade secret, and you independently developed it, yes, you you could sell it. Um, and obviously you couldn't sell it as uh, under the Coca-Cola brand, but uh, you could sell it. And that's key. You couldn't sell it under the name Coca-Cola because of trademark law. But as for the drink itself, give it any name you like. You've just done the impossible. I mean, the, the reality of it is I would find it hard to believe uh, that you could independently develop uh, Coca-Cola since others have tried and, and failed. Uh, but you never know. All right. So maybe Coca-Cola isn't going to be independently produced anytime soon. But it raises an important point about trade secrets. They're only protected as long as the person or company who holds them is able to protect them. If the Coca-Cola company accidentally released the secret formula on the internet and you just happen to read it, then just like that, their trade secret would be no more. And that sort of thing, it's not so far-fetched. To all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. It's your McDonald's Big Mac. You've got to taste it to believe it, you know what I mean? To all beef patty, Back in 2012 the executive chef for McDonald's released a video on YouTube in which he recreated step-by-step step the iconic Big Mac special sauce. So here we have some store-bought mayonnaise, we have some sweet pickle relish, and then we have a classic yellow mustard. Here of course, a bit of a that was intentional, but it underscores the, the most important point about powder. this area of IP law. You can protect something as a trade secret as long as it remains a trade secret according to the definition, which is, you know, secret, valuable, and you use reasonable protect, uh, steps to protect it. As opposed to, say, a patent. Once you patent something, it's no longer trade secret. Um, and because part of the bargain of getting a 
patent on something is you disclose you disclose the invention to the world and it's public information even though they can't use it until the uh, length of the patent expires. Sometimes it's worth the risk of keeping a trade secret because you simply don't want that information out there. And you trust that you can keep your secret safe. If you have something like Coca-Cola, which has had incredible value since the 1800s, yeah, you want to invest that sort of money in protection. You need to protect a trade secret reasonably in order to get trade secret status and be eligible to protect it as a trade secret in the future if it's misappropriated. You need to be, the trade secret holder needs to show that it took reasonable steps to keep it secret and it's generally not known. Hence the palm scanner, steel door, and two-person rule. But for the storied trade secrets, the KFCs, Coca-Cola, and chartreuses of the world, there's something else something almost mystical. It definitely becomes more mythic just because it's shrouded in this sort of secret history. That's Derek Brown again. It's related to, to this secretive order. It's related to um, this, you know, alchemy. It's kind of, you know, has this weird past that you can't help but feel a little interest in. And people do feel it. 400 years after that alchemist passed along his manuscript, Bartenders all over the world are still mixing it for eager customers. It's never really tried to be anything else. It doesn't, you know, as you see spirits changing over time, right? They adopt new formulas, new bottles, new graphics, new, you know, new kind of presentations, new advertising campaigns. Um, They do everything they can to make you want to buy it all the time. But for the Carthusian monks, the old ways... The secret ways, well, they aren't old at all. They're timeless. This one obviously has changed aspects of its bottle logo and so forth, but it really isn't like that. It's just kind of this continuous thread from the beginning. It's still got the same stamp of the order on it. It's still got the same idea behind it, and it's grown in its production, and it is definitely a mass-produced product to some degree, but um, it also, you know, that belongs to the past. It's a past with a legacy that continues into the present day and the future, thanks to a trade secret known only to two silent brothers in the snowy Alps. What products trade secret do you wish you knew? Tell us on Twitter at IPO Foundation.